So I'll just tell you all a story. When I was in high school, I uh, had a chemistry teacher that we were pretty sure was Batman um, because he was uh, a former police officer, a current uh, volunteer firefighter, and was also a black belt in Taekwondo, as well as being a high school chemistry teacher. So one of the things that we loved to do was to get him off of chemistry and talking about anything else because everything else in his life seemed so much more fascinating than chemistry did to us at the time. And uh, sometimes that would work. And one day we were he was just kind of taking questions about things and somebody said, hey, I've got a question. Why is it that I'll be driving down the road and I will see a police car, no sirens, no lights, but just speeding down the road? What's with that? It's not really fair, is it? And his answer was, well, sometimes they're doing what they're not supposed to do. But sometimes the reason they do that is because it actually is a faster way to get where they need to go because sometimes when they turn on their lights and their sirens, people freak out. They don't know what they're supposed to do and they will just stop in the middle of the road. He told us that, and I thought, that's weird. Nobody would really do that. I just saw that happen in San Angelo this week. (laughs) Someone was just stopped in the middle of the road. I was like, what are they doing? And then I saw the lights coming behind them. Oh, and it was an ambulance, actually, who had to swerve weird out of the way. And So for those of you who have driver's licenses, (laughs) think in advance of what you're supposed to do (laughs) when the lights come on. Don't just stop in the middle of the road. But uh, bring that up and tell this story because there's the assumption that was there of what was going on for this student who was asking the question saying, it must be the case that this person is doing wrong because they're flying down the road faster than the speed limit and they don't have on their lights. And, fair enough, my teacher was like, maybe. But there's also maybe another way of looking at it. And maybe this uh, police officer is doing exactly what they're supposed to do uh, to accomplish what needs to be accomplished um, because of how people respond. Okay. So with that, we have talked about disguises before, like around Halloween time, and how people disguise themselves. And so this is a way of police officers maybe has disguised themselves. It's maybe a bit of a stretch. Um, but we talked about it then, of people disguising themselves uh, sometimes to hide who they are, and sometimes they put on a costume to maybe show who they really are because they're hiding most of the rest of the time. And so uh, thinking in those terms I think is helpful when we think about a lot of what's going on in the Bible and a lot of what's going on in the world around us of um, what is what is it that people are putting forward, and is that real and true, or is that a costume or a disguise? And what about with Jesus himself? Anyway, those are things to think about today and this week, but for now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, that you have given to us as a way of revealing who you are. 
God, that we could know you, that we can know uh, your heart, that we can know your character. And God, even that we would know how to be in right relationship with you and with each other and with this world. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see things clearly, help us to know better who you are, help us to know better who it is that you're calling us to be. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. As we continue in our readings through Mark, Jesus continues teaching his disciples, and he said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And then turning to Second Corinthians, chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What, e- what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And this affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Before we get into our uh, sermon text this morning, I got to tell you a couple things. One, I have to tell you about Leverett marriage, what it is, and then two, I also need to just let you know up front, we don't practice this anymore. That should come as a relief to you as you hear what Leverett marriage is. Leverett marriage was something that was done in ancient Near East cultures where in order to preserve the family name, in order to preserve uh, the name of someone who has died without kids, the way that it worked is uh, you have several brothers. One of them marries a woman. They don't have any kids. He dies. Then the way that it worked is now one of his brothers, next in line, is supposed to have children with her to carry on uh, the brother who died, his family name. That's the way that it works. And there were reasons for this uh, by way of protecting who she is, but mostly it was for the um, furthering of this particular family line, that it would not end just because that one person died in the uh, kind of family tree there. And so it was a way of maintaining the family name, uh, also to continue to produce uh, further generations so the whole tree continues to spread out. And then also um, we see later on even in some of the laws given by God to the people of Israel specifically, it was to maintain that name with their particular piece of property in the land that God was giving them. And so there was, there was a purpose for this. And you see it show up lots of times throughout the Bible, this idea, this practice. Uh, one of the times that it shows up is in the book of Ruth, where you see uh, this practice as one where if you know, is it Deuteronomy 25, I think it is, where it talks about lever at marriage, and if somebody's not going to do their duty, then the woman is supposed to take off their sandal and spit in their face, and that person's family from then on is going to be known as the family of the unsandaled, which... Don't throw those words around lightly. Um, but we get to the book of Ruth, which is in the time of the judges, and it just says they, the guy who's not going to do his duty actually just takes off his sandal and gives it to him because this is the way that things were done then. And it's like, oh, man, they have really fallen because that is pointing out what was such a shameful act has become so commonplace that people just don't do what they're supposed to do, which I think maybe we can relate to. <laughs> it's just commonplace that people don't do what they ought to do. But you also see this show up in the Gospels when you have the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection come to Jesus and they're going to test him with a question. And so they start this question of, okay, so there, was, there were seven brothers and one of them was married to somebody and then he died and they didn't have any kids and she married the next one and they died and no, no kids and just on down the line and then all of them, so now whose wife is she going to be at the resurrection? And Jesus is like, <laughs> he doesn't say it there, but you know, you kind of get this sigh and like a how long? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, but he says, no, you're, you're in error. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And we're not going to go into that particular story right now, but I'm just pointing out, this is one of those practices that shows up again and again because it was the, uh, the culture of the day. This was the kind of how it's supposed to be. Like everybody knew that even if they didn't do it, they knew this is how it's supposed to be. Now, that was part one, explaining what leveret marriage is. Number two was reminding you, we don't do that now. That's not how it's supposed to be now. <laughs> so if anybody is um, in a particular situation that looks like this one and you're going, uh-oh, um, this might mean weird stuff between in-laws, no, that is not how that goes anymore. 
Uh, and there are also reasons for that we're not going to go into today. Because today we're talking about a time when it was supposed to be what was taking place. And this was um, Genesis 38 is what we're looking at. And we have been following along the story of Joseph now, which started in Genesis 37. Joseph being you got Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And then Joseph is one of the uh, 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob, whose name got changed to Israel, so these end up becoming like the 12 tribes of Israel. More on that later. But I said last week that as we are following the story of Joseph, it is this, these last section, this last section of Genesis is at the same time the story of Joseph and the story of Judah, right? And so last week we looked at uh, Joseph getting uh, thrown into a pit, and then they, because their brothers were going to kill him, but then they said, no, let's sell him into slavery in Egypt. And whose idea was that? That was Judah. And so we saw Judah there, and now we're going to shift over, and this next chapter is entirely a story of Judah. And it's like, why is this in the middle of the story of Joseph? And it's because it's a story of both of them. <laughs> This is Joseph, but it's also a story about Judah, and we need to know what's going on uh, with Judah as well. Um, and I'll get into why in a bit. But for now, just knowing that, here's the story. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, He may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, 
in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road in Aim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So, this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. There you go. My goodness. Any questions? Isn't this bizarre? I forgot to give the PG-13 warning on this one. (laughs) It does get a, a little graphic in parts. We've talked about that before. The Bible is not PG. But it deals with the things of life. And uh, where babies come from is a part of that. Now, you probably have some questions regarding this whole section. And I think probably the biggest question of the whole thing is, what in the world does... Judah mean by saying she's more righteous than me. Like she disguised herself as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law. And we're like, well done, girl. That's how you're supposed to do it. Is this the lesson we're supposed to learn? That disguising yourself to sleep with, what? And yet, that's what he says at the end. She's more righteous than I am. So what's going on here? And to get the answer to that question, Again, we have to understand this bit about leveret marriage and what the purpose of that was and what it was, that, what situation she was in, what situation he was in, understand why she did what she did and how the specifics of her situation maybe aren't something we're supposed to be copying. Um, but maybe there is something else here for us. So here's what it is. You've got Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, right? Judah, by the way, where is he living now? Is he still living with his brothers? He is not. What happened there? We don't know. But it said at that time, right? At what time? Presumably right after the whole incident with Joseph and selling him to slavery in Egypt and going back and telling uh, their father, "Eh, we found this coat all bloody and torn up. 
What do you think happened? And then seeing their dad in such distress and grief. And then it says, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down somewhere else. I don't know why. But that connection makes me suspicious that maybe the reason he left is because he couldn't face his father in the situation that he was in, knowing his role in the whole thing. The reason that Jacob is grieving the loss of Joseph is because Judah said, hey, let's sell him to Egypt. So maybe he leaves for that. But he goes off and he marries a Canaanite, has these three sons, and then gets a wife for his oldest, because that's what you do. And then, in a very strange passage, just says that the oldest one uh, says, verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. And we're given no other details. Wouldn't you like a little more there? Uh, what exactly did he do so I can avoid that, maybe? Why exactly does God put him to death for being wicked in his sight when we see throughout the Bible all kinds of people doing wicked things and God doesn't put them to death? What happened here? Don't know. But that apparently is not the point of this story. So we continue. We do learn of the next son, why he's put to death and what it is that he does that's wicked. And that is, he sleeps with his sister-in-law. That's not the wicked part. That's actually the part he's supposed to do. But he doesn't provide children for her on purpose. And the only reason he's supposed to be sleeping with her is to provide children for her. Or for his dead brother, anyway. But he's not. So God puts him to death as well. And then you've got Judah, who has now lost two children, who have both slept with this black widow. And he gets nervous. I got one son left. And if she marries him, who knows? Maybe the same thing's going to happen. And so uh, he's still too young to get married, uh, that being Sheila. And so he says, Why don't you go back home? Go back home. Tamar, you just live with your father and his family, and when my youngest son grows up and is old enough, then you can marry him. Deal. So she goes back home, lives in her father's household. But then, verse 12 says, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of uh, Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah. A lot of time has passed. In fact, we find out that it's so much time that has passed that Sheila has grown up, has had enough time to grow up, and had enough time that Tamar has seen that though he has grown up, there's no marriage taking place, nothing on the horizon, that Judah is not doing right by her, not doing right by his oldest son who had died not doing right by his family or even by God. This is the position that she's in. She has options. 
she actually could just stay with her father, probably. And I think that was Judah's plan. We're done with her. She can stay there. That's fine. But she doesn't. What she does is something that genuinely puts her life at risk. You heard when uh, she is accused of prostitution that Judah's response is she's supposed to burn her to death. That's what she gets for what she's done. I assume she knew this was the kind of risk she's taking, that she could be killed for taking this action. So why in the world would she do it? There are, um, in Hittite laws in the area, you have, because keep in mind, with all this leveret marriage stuff, we haven't gotten to Mount Sinai yet where God gives the law. We haven't gotten to the edge of the promised land yet where Moses is going over, here's how to live in the land. All that comes later. And so now this is kind of local uh, law and expectation and culture. But in Hittite law, they did have that if the, um, if the sons, if you kind of worked your way through that line and there's nobody left, it was the father-in-law's responsibility to be the one to um, have children for his children. So when she actually goes to her father-in-law like that, she's actually taking the path that was culturally appropriate. But what about the disguising herself and all that? Best I can tell, it's because this is the only way for what is right to take place. This is what he was supposed to do, but he wasn't going to do it. And so she risks her life for the, actually for the good of his family. If you know where this story is heading, you know that Jacob has these 12 sons, but that the promise was you know, through Isaac. Not, you know, so Abraham gets his promise, bless the whole world through you. And that's going to be through then his son Isaac, not Ishmael. And then of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, it's going to be through Jacob, not Esau. And now of Jacob's 12 sons, we go, well, who's it going to be? And if you know further in the story, it's, it's through Judah. That's where this is coming from. And yet, you look at what Judah has done, and it looks like he's okay with his line just dying out. God's not okay with his line dying out, right? This is the line through whom the uh, promised one is going to come, through whom we're going to get this blessing for the whole world. Now, Tamar probably doesn't know that. And yet, what she does is actually rescue that family line. Through strange means, granted. But this is why, when you get to the end of the story, uh, you have Judah actually saying, she is more righteous than I. Why does he say that? Since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. He knew it. What, he, what she had done, and yes, she disguised herself in order to accomplish this, but what she did is basically put his own sin 
right before his eyes. She was willing to personally sacrifice for the good of his family. Think about everything we know about Judah to this point in the story. Is he willing to do personal sacrifice for the sake of anybody else? Not that we've seen. He didn't personally sacrifice himself for Joseph when his life was on the line. He's the one who came up with the idea, let's just sell him to slavery in Egypt. Make a little money on the side. Not sacrificing for the good of others. Using others for himself. Then we get um, this story of his family line. Sacrificing for the sake of others? No, he leaves his family. Find somebody else. Going to do his own thing. Unless it's not working out. So we have him marry his uh, oldest son to Tamar. When that doesn't produce children, he dies. Okay, we'll try this one time. Nope, nope, you're not doing that anymore. And so though he's supposed to let his uh, youngest one marry her, he doesn't. Because he's not willing to risk sacrifice. And here she willingly takes it on. This, I think, is why he says she is more righteous than I. There's actually a play on words here that you don't necessarily see unless you know kind of Hebrew and culture. <laughs> but thankfully, there are people who do, and you can look this kind of stuff up. You know what Tamar's name means? It means palm tree. You're welcome. <laughs> There's more to it than just that. Palm tree has kind of an association of not only being fruitful, there were lots of fruitful trees that were uh, people were named after, but a palm tree is also straight, upright, synonyms with the word righteous. And so when someone is described as Tamar, as uh, a palm tree, it's a way of saying they are upright, they are righteous. And so here we have this uh, story where if you knew that going in, the whole way through, you're looking at her actions going, is that right? Is she really upright and just? And you get to the end, yeah. That's exactly what he says about her, that she is more righteous than he is. We're going to get to the babies in just a second, but I want one more thing on Judah. Remember, this is the story not only of Joseph, but also of Judah. And I said that what she did brought his sin right in front of him. I mean, who was actually guilty of prostitution here, right? (laughs) He is the one who offered her. He is the one who slept with her thinking she was a prostitute. And yet, then he wants to burn her to death at the mere accusation of what he's actually done, right? You see that? Oh, my goodness. This is so common where we want to uh, completely let ourselves off the hook, but not let anybody else off the hook. And yet, when all is revealed, he just sees his sin staring him straight back in the mirror. He was not willing to sacrifice for her, but this is only part of his story. As we move forward, Continue to pay attention to Judah. 
there will come a point where he is willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And I love that. That at this point in the story, we can get all high and mighty looking down on Judah. Oh, what a dirt bag. The moment we do that, we're staring ourselves in the face again, <laughs> looking at our own sin in the mirror. Because all of us have a part of our story where we are completely doing the wrong thing. But, as we'll see with Judah, I can still move forward. Sometimes going a roundabout way to get there. And that's where we end with this story, is with the babies that are born. And so we have this family line that was in jeopardy by everything that Judah had done. And then through what Tamar does, this family line is rescued, and not just rescued, but fruitful. There's not just one boy. There's two boys. And so this family line will continue. This uh, twin boys, which kind of reminds us even of Jacob and Esau. And not just reminds us, but really reminds us. Because even from the beginning, where Jacob and Esau, I don't remember, know if you remember the, uh, the heel-grabbing thing. That's what Jacob is named after, is grabbing the heel as one who uh, deceives, but also one who supplants, who takes the place of his older brother. That's exactly what we have here again. Not a heel-grabbing moment, but uh, it says he was, she was giving birth. One of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it around on his wrist, and said, this one came out first, the firstborn. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and said, oh, so this is how you have broken out. He was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. So you basically have the firstborn child being born second. What? <laughs> but that's what this is a story about. I mean, this is what we've seen over and over again, is the, you, you think of this is the one who's supposed to be, and yet this is the one who actually is. We saw that with Jacob and Esau, and we see this time and again, and even with Jacob's sons, where the, the line of the promise is not going to go through Reuben or Simeon or Levi, who are all older than Judah. It goes through Judah. And we're going to find out later that the family line is not going to go through, uh, the line of the promise is not going to go through Zerah, the one who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, as the one who was the firstborn and marked as such, but Perez, the younger. That is something to watch out for. The title of the sermon, Scarlet Thread, different than the Scarlet Letter. Because you see the scarlet thread here mentioned uh, like the, as that identifying mark that we see on Zerah, that firstborn. But it's been pointed out in years past that a scarlet thread is, as you look at the whole tapestry of the biblical story, as you look at the whole tapestry of human history, it's like there's this scarlet thread that is woven through the whole thing. And if you follow that line, that is the line of Jesus. And it's this line that includes redemption and sacrifice for the good of others. People who are willing to lay down their lives for the good of others. You see, um, 
people doing things that point us to Jesus. You see the uh, genealogy and the family line that points us to Jesus. And in this story, where we actually have a scarlet thread mentioned, we actually have both the genealogy that leads to Jesus and someone whose character is pointing us to Jesus. As she's willing to face personal sacrifice for the good of others. So, in conclusion, the point of the story is not to go dress as a prostitute and sleep with extended family members. If you get that from this, you're reading it wrong. But the point is to seek out ways, even ways that are sometimes maybe outside the box of what we normally think of, to actually do right, even when that means risk of personal sacrifice, maybe actual personal sacrifice, but for the good of others. Maybe even in Tamar's case, for the good of someone who doesn't even care about you. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.